Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Pray with me, Lord, open our hearts and open Jim's lips and give us uh, your word, your truth, and then move our affections and our minds uh, to put our lives in your hands and our feet in your ways. And everybody who agreed with this prayer in Jesus' name said, amen. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, Before I start the message, I just wanted to thank you for praying for this uh, young man. This is uh, little David, and uh, after 25 days in the NICU, he was born seven weeks premature, that was him leaving, and he's waving goodbye to everybody in there. (laughs) Kid's a genius, you know. He's, He's still about two weeks before his due date. So uh, he's a little guy, but uh, things, are, things are looking good. So thank you, thank you for praying. You know, this morning we're going to start a new uh, sermon series, and it's on the book of Philippians. And if you've read the book of Philippians, it's just a, it's a great book. You know, you'll probably say to yourself, yeah, yeah, I, just, I love this book. It's great. And I think as we go through it again, I think you're going to love it even more. And um, This book uh, was written to a a church that Paul had planted in a city of Philippi. Now, this was a Roman uh, colony, kind of, but it was in the Roman Empire and kind of a wealthy city. Um, Those are the ruins of the big amphitheater that was there in Paul's day. And it's got some history in the Roman Roman Empire, too. Actually, uh, I think you've all heard of the assassination of Julius Caesar, which took place in about 44 B.C. And Caesar, uh, when Caesar was assassinated, the, uh, it set off a civil war. And the side uh, that had assassinated him ended up with their armies at this city of Philippi, which is in, um, in eastern Greece, in eastern Macedonia, which is in Greece. And uh, their leader was a man named Marcus Brutus. And historians record, so at least Plutarch says this, that in uh, about 42 B.C., right before the battle at Philippi, the uh, spirit appeared to Brutus the night before. It was like in the form of uh, Julius Caesar, you know, the assassinated Caesar, and said, I will see you at Philippi. In other words, like, you're going to die tomorrow. I'm going to get revenge for my death and stuff. And sure enough, the next day, Brutus going into battle ended up dead. Okay, now exactly... Exactly 100 years later, Paul, an evangelist who has planted a whole bunch of churches in the Middle East, especially in Turkey, he's on the the western coast of Turkey, and he has a vision of a man coming from Philippi. And the man says to him, come to Macedonia, come over to Philippi and help us. And Paul took this as a word, hey, he was supposed to leave Asia for the first time in his life and head over into Europe and preach to these wild and crazy Europeans the gospel. And Paul was obedient to that. So he took off from um, the city of Troas in, in uh, western Turkey, across uh, the Aegean Sea and went over to Philippi. And there he led a number of people to the Lord and they became a church and Paul went on to other cities, and he just loved these people. He just loved them. And so he wrote this letter later on 
uh, to these people. And you're going to see in Philippians 1, which is what I'm going to be covering today, you're going to see this affection that he's got for these people. So he starts out and he says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Back in the day, they signed the letter in the first sentence, you know, so you knew who it was from, right? Lots of snail mail letters going back and forth in those days. And he says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus give you grace and peace. And then he says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Can you, can you just feel that affection in there and you know, how much he cares for these guys? They're always on his mind, even though he's, he's far apart from them. Now, one of the things that we discover right away in this book is that Paul's world had shrunk. Paul's world had gotten smaller. And um, the fact of the matter is, here's a guy that's been all over the place, all over the Middle East, now he's been all over Europe, he's been preaching the gospel, he's had a huge following in places, he's been a guy that's been, you know, notorious in some places where people hated him because they felt, hey, what's this new stuff he's bringing? And then he's, in other places, he's like a celebrity, and now he's in prison, and he's writing this letter from jail. And he's been in jail for a while, and he says in verse 7, so it's right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. So here he is in prison. And, and just that last line, it just rings in my ears because he's going, man, I miss these guys. I wish I could be there, but I'm stuck here in prison. And this reminded me so much of a book that I just finished reading here um, called The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. Um, this is like a biography of Bin Laden, and it talked about how, you know, right after 9-11, uh, uh, he was a big hero in the Muslim world, right? And people were lo looking to him. Hey, what do, you, what do you think we ought to do? I mean, he was like considered the wise man and just had pulled off this kind of amazing thing, right? And, and so he's big time, right? And he's kind of reveling in this whole thing. And then what happens is the United States comes after him, right? And so the CIA is hunting him down, and he realizes there's a bounty on his life. So he has to go into hiding. And eventually, because the United States had a presence in Afghanistan, he's even chased out of there, and he ends up in, uh, in western Pakistan. He's got this compound and he's far away, you know, he's away from, like, civilization there. And he cuts off all communication because he doesn't want to get tracked down. He knows that if he starts communicating, that's going to get bugged and stuff. And events start to unfold without him being part of them. And you guys remember the Arab Spring? Remember there was that big unrest in Egypt, and then there was, that was going on in Tunisia and stuff, and there's big developments all over the Arab world. And bin Laden's not part of that. And that drives him crazy. His world had shrunk. It was like nobody was seeking his opinion anymore. He's out of, the, he's out of business, so to speak. And he even took the unprecedented step of, of sending for his oldest wife. You know, he had four wives. And 
he sent it for his oldest wife, Um Hamza, and who was kind of a political advisor to him, to try to get her to come back to the compound. He took a big risk, and that might have actually been part of what led the United States forces to find out where he actually was. But his world had shrunk. And I thought of somebody else in connection with this, just thinking of Paul, who's sitting here in prison, and he's just not a big factor anymore. And um, I was thinking of my principal and his, his sister. And his, his sister uh, lives in Las Vegas, and she and her husband had this little girl, and she was born with a defective heart. And they realized that she was not even going to make it to her first birthday if she could not get a transplant. And so I remember at, at Lutheran West, we prayed for her every day that she would be able to get a, this, little, this little girl would be able to get that heart to have transplanted. And our prayers were answered. And, you know, that's about the, what we're talking about right there. And they, they transplanted this heart into this little girl, and it worked. But you know what happens. They've got to suppress her immune system uh, just to, so that she wouldn't reject the heart. And as a result, she had to kind of live in a bubble, right? And so it's like her mom couldn't work her, her job anymore, had to stay home. It was like the family's whole social life had to shrink as a result. You know, it's like your world can shrink. And maybe that's happened to you. Maybe it's happening to you right now where your world has, has gotten smaller than it was. And maybe it was like you used to be like pretty influential at your job and now... Maybe it is that people aren't asking your opinion anymore. Maybe you had to cut back there. or Maybe you've had a wide circle of friends. But some of those friends have drifted away, and you find yourself thinking, man, I think I got more lonely time than I used to have before. You know, maybe it's like a time where you were injured. You're laid up, and you're recuperating, and you can't get out and do the stuff that you want to do, and your, your world kind of shrinks. Or I think of like... Um, our, a bus driver that we have at, at school, and her husband has ALS, and he's slowly wasting away and losing all of his strength, and her time is spent more and more as a, a caregiver, and her world has kind of shrunk down to her husband and, and, and caring for him. Or maybe there was a person in your life that was very special to you, someone that you loved, and for one reason or another, they're not there anymore, and you just feel that, that emptiness in your life. You know, there's a variety of ways that our lives just shrink. And what do we do in that situation? And I look at Paul here in this first chapter, and I begin to see how he handled a shrinking world. And the, the first thing I saw was that, like, in verse 9, he prayed. He said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. He couldn't be there with them, but he would pray for them and pray for them. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. You know who I thought about when I saw that verse? I thought about Josette Fenhan. You know, many of you know Josette. And she's been kind of like confined to her house for the last few years, just so much chronic pain. It's hard for her even to move around in her house. And every time I call her, it's like before I can say, how are you doing, Josette? She's going, how's your grandson doing? I've been praying for him. 
And before I can ask her, and then I'll tell, and then I'll try to ask, and then she'll go like, how's, how's that nephew of yours who had the bone cancer and the surgery? I've been praying for him. And, you know, it's like sometimes Josette says, I, I, I can't get out. I can't be with, with people as much. All I can do is pray for them. And I remember what Jim Morford said to her. He said, you know what, Josette, you're accomplishing more by praying for people than most of us are accomplishing by all of our scurrying around and trying to make things happen. You know, there's real power in that. And that's how one of the ways that Paul dealt with the shrinking world. It didn't, it actually, you know, counterculturally or, or counterintuitively, I should say, didn't affect his influence as much as maybe he thought it would because his prayers were powerful for them. And then it's, it says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. He's going like, you know what, I can see God at work in this situation right here, even in prison. He says, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. And so instead of like sitting there and chafing about the whole thing, he's going like, you know what, I see good things happening even here. You know, it's like, wow. Amazing things are happening that wouldn't have been happening if I hadn't been confined in this little world that I'm stuck in right now. And here's the part that blows me away. He says, it's true that some are pre preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. So he's hearing what's going on out there. So what's happening in his absence? He, he's not able to preach to them anymore. He's not able to teach, right? But he goes, uh, some preach out of jealousy and rivalry. Others preach about Christ with pure motives. He's hearing about these other guys, these other teachers and preachers. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. So he goes, you know what? There's guys out there that have replaced me in places, and some of those guys are just out there to try to build their own little empire. You know, I got, I'm going to have this big ministry. You know, I'm going to be a big shot. You know, I'm going to be a celebrity and stuff. And he's going, some of these guys are probably just in it for the money because they know they can make a comfortable living out of it. And then look at his reaction. He says, but that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. I mean, I would have assumed he would have gone like, I resent this. These guys are just trying to, you know, but he's going, hey, the truth is going out. And even if the truth is in the mouth of somebody who has dubious character, the truth is the truth, and the gospel has power. You know, I was, just, I was thinking about this. I was actually led to the Lord watching a, a televangelist who had kind of dubious reputation. But the truth of the gospel is so powerful, it went out. And Paul's going like, I'm keeping my eye on the big picture, and I'm not just thinking about, you know, personal rivalry and jealousy and envy, you know, and my own ambitions and career. There was a previous time in Paul's life when he went through something just like this. First time he was at Philippi. If you know the story from Acts, he's, he's doing pretty well, leading people to the Lord in this city for the first time. And then he gets tossed in prison uh, on trumped-up charges, beaten severely, and he ends up, like, in the stocks in prison. And how is he going to deal with this? And the, the first thing it says is, around midnight, Paul and Silas, this is in prison here, were praying and singing hymns to God. He's worshiping and praying. How does he do that? 
and the other prisoners were listening. And then it says, suddenly there was a massive earthquake. And I don't know if you know the end of the story, but it's like the whole prison flew open. He could have escaped. And Paul uses this opportunity to help out the prison warden and lead him and his family to know Jesus Christ. He seizes this opportunity. You know, he never seems to be thinking much about himself. It's just like he had the big picture in mind. You know, it says they shared the word of the Lord with a jailer guy and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds, and then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He, Paul seized the opportunities to serve the Lord. You know, I think back to a time when my world shrunk, and it was like in March of 2020. And I remember that because I had this, this, it was one English class that was one of the best I ever had. I was having such a ball with these guys. There were 28 uh, students in that class. It was a fairly big class. And the, it was like the intellectual energy was just crackling in the room. And we'd just go back and forth. And the kids were like challenging each other. So it was like the teacher's dream. I'm going, oh, they're paying me for this. This is awesome. It was the best ever, you know? And I'd come home and my, my wife and I would be walking and she'd go, well, how was school? I'd go like, I was teaching up a storm, you know? It's like, yes, so awesome. And I remember this one day, I was saying the very same thing. We get back from our walk, our neighbor comes out, next door neighbor comes out and says, hey, did you hear what just happened? And I'm going like, what? She said, Governor DeWine closed all the schools. Going, you're kidding me. I was teaching up a storm, you know? It's like, come on. And I was like, no, no. And it was like my whole world shrunk, and we had to go virtual, you know, which is like twice the work and, and about one-fourth of the, of the educational value. And it was just, oh. And I, I got to tell you, I just complained. I was angry. I just kept complaining. And finally I thought, you know what? I'm supposed to be spiritually mature. I can't keep complaining. So I thought, I'm not. So I stopped complaining, and I started whining. And, and I just... It was bad, you know, and, and I look at this. I look at Paul when his world shrunk. I mean, I wasn't in prison. They hadn't been beaten, you know. I wasn't in the stocks or anything. And I'm going like, Paul, man, how did you do this? How do you, how do you, this is like, it, it seems amazing. And I discovered the secret right here, and it's, this is the heart of chapter one. This is Paul's secret. He kept his eyes on the big picture. And take a look at, these are classic verses, verses 20 and 21. He says, I fully expect and hope that I'll never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Aren't those amazing lines? Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. The first thing is, Jesus is the center of all my priorities in life. That's what Paul says. He's the center of everything. That's so important. Living means living for Christ. I just finished reading this book that a guy gave me at a Bible study, and he said, it's, it's kind of a fable about a high school basketball coach whose team is just, they're talented, but they don't win. And he gets so mad at them, and he's trying to get them to get somewhere, and then he's having these long conversations at the same time with the school janitor who knows the Lord. And the janitor kind of leads him to see, hey, you've just been living selfishly. 
And you need to have that purpose for life of, of living for something bigger than yourself. And he, he leads him to get to know Jesus Christ. And he starts changing. And his team goes, what's happened to you, coach? And in one speech to them, he says this. I realized it's no more God first, family second, and school work or team third. That's a bunch of, of whatever. It never works. God's too big to be put in a priority box. Instead, he wants to be at the center of all my priorities of life because he wants to be a part of everything I do. You know, we have this tendency to go like, okay, God is my first priority. But then I got all these other compartments over here that I'm kind of running. You know what I'm saying? And when I do that, I kind of miss the point that Jesus wants to be the center of everything in my life. All these other little compartments that I've got, including my teaching, you know, my relationships, my, my friendships, all these kind of my, my entertainments and all these things. It's got to be Jesus at the center of everything. And that's, that was Paul's first big secret. Of, of understanding these things. And secondly, he said, I refuse to fear death. Dying is even better than living. You know, that's something that would make no sense to you unless you understood that Jesus had come into the world for you and me, and he paid the price for sin, suffered and died, and he rose again. And he's saying, hey, if you belong to me, if you put your trust in me, you're going to be as alive as long as I'm alive which is forever. We have an eternal future that cannot go away. An eternal future, an immense future. I, I teach this book called uh, The Power and the Glory. I've mentioned it before. I love it. My students don't. I still don't love this book. I taught it again this year. I'm waiting for them to go, hey, that was a great... No, it didn't happen. There's just a, but there's this main character in there that, uh, that's the lieutenant. He's, he's uh, an atheist. Uh, actually, it's based on a true story. He's a communist leader in a state in southern Mexico during the 30s when this happened. And he's determined to exterminate Christianity. He says it's a fake. It's just bogus. It keeps our eyes off of the fact that we can create a utopia, a utopian world ourselves. And so he eliminates, he kills all the priests in the territory except for two. The one guy's still on the run, and that's the, what the novel's about. But the other guy's a priest who just gave up. He renounces his faith, marries his housekeeper, because he's afraid to die. And the lieutenant thinks about this guy all the time, the guy who, who you know, turned his back on the faith, and he, he, he likes this guy around. He says, oh, it's good to have him. He says, the lieutenant's thinking, the priest who had married his housekeeper and thus left the priesthood in order to save his life was the best solution of all to be a living witness to the weakness of the Christian faith. And then he's talking about Christians, and he said, for if they really believed in heaven or hell, they wouldn't mind a little pain now in return for the immensity of what they would receive. You know, if we really believe that Jesus has taken care of our future, that we have that eternal future, then all the fear that comes against us in our society... You know, there's, there's health fears that, that are launched against us. There's economic fears that come against us. You know, political fears, all these kind of things. And we're just bombarded, right, day after day in the media. And so many people in our society are just afraid. 
and they live lives of fear. And Paul could have, could have been in, you know, he was in that same situation where he had all these threats on his life. And yet Paul said, you know, to die is, is gain. To die is even better. I'm not worried about that. That's, a, that's not a bad thing. But then, this is where it really gets, like, impressive. He says, knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive. He says, he's kind of weighing this about, he, he knows he has a very good chance of dying here. And he's, you know, he's going like, yeah, but I could also live. So he goes, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ. He's going, dying is, is better, right? Which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. So he's going, what am I going to do? It's better that I live. Now, remember what Doug said about three weeks ago when he was preaching through, I think it was Ephesians 4. He, he, told, he detailed all the suffering that Paul went through with his work in serving the churches. The fact that he'd been just about beaten to death on five occasions with a whip, three times with rods, he'd been robbed, he'd been, gotten sick, he had been intimidated, he had been hated. I mean, it was just like suffering after suffering. And Paul's going, you know, it's probably better that I would stay alive and put up with this stuff for your sakes. And so he says, knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. Do you hear what he's saying? He's going, dying would be better, but I think that God's calling on my life is to serve you, and so I believe that's what I'm supposed to do. And so it's this. Jesus is the center of all my priorities. I refuse to fear death, but my purpose in life is to serve Jesus and whoever he puts in my life. You know, this is what's missing from the way that we, from the church's message these days. We, all, we always preach, and we rightfully so, put your trust in Jesus. And then we say, and you can go to heaven. And we miss everything else that Jesus is telling us to do. Because it isn't a matter of like, okay, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and believe in him, and then I'm just going to try to live as comfortably as I can, live for me, and hope that I uh, die in my sleep and have a comfortable death and, and go to heaven. He's going, I want you to serve me here. And that's important. And we miss out on that so often because there's people that he's putting in our lives. You know, I was leaving the library last week, and I saw the sign as you leave. It says, thanks for visiting your library. Stay safe. And I thought, that's kind of weird. I mean, if I was running a library, I think my sign would say, thanks for visiting your library. Stay reading. You know? <laughs> Love books. Keep informed. That would be my sign right there. But this has become a big thing in our culture, isn't it? It's like safety. Safety first. And I understand that. I mean, I live, you know, cautiously. I've been vaccinated. I drive carefully, you know. I'm always checking things out. When I ride my bike, you know, I'm not taking any big risks or anything like that. I eat nutritious things like pizza and stuff, you know. And so I understand this whole idea of safety. But I want to tell you that if safety becomes our top priority, and if that starts to get in the way of you and me doing the serving of others and the ministry that God has called us to, there is something terribly wrong. You know, the Lord's going, look it, to live is for Christ, to die is gain, and there's people out there and there's work to do for the Lord that's going to bring glory to his name. 
And that's what Paul saw. That was the secret of his success. That's why he could react the way he did when his world shrunk. And so he closes the chapter and he says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven and conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. You know, when I was going through a time of pretty tough persecution years ago, there was a brother in the Lord who came to me. His name was Joel Gesh. You maybe heard him speak like at a Good Friday. He comes to our, our church, you know, sometimes early service here, sometimes on Saturday night. He, he gave me this verse, and he said, I want you to hold on to this verse, Jim. It was such an encouragement to me. Verse 29, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in a struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. I'd like to close with this. Um, I got a student in one of my classes, and I sat down with him the other day. He's a senior. And I said, you know, I had him tell, um, I had him tell me his story. And he said, you know, about a year and a half ago, he said, I really start, went through a time of real struggle and doubt about whether God was real, this whole message that had been taught by my family was real. And he said it was just tearing me up inside and affecting my life. And he said, I was scrolling through YouTube one night, and I hit this part where they had this debate on YouTube between Christopher Hitchens, who is a very well-known atheist, and a, a very well-known Christian apologist, a guy who really speaks in defense of the faith. So he said, i got to watch this. So he watched this, and he said, you know, the Christian guy destroyed Christopher Hitchens' arguments. He said, and I started to realize these arguments for atheism are so shallow. So he started reading more about it and reading more books. And he said, you know what, uh, I'm all, uh, this year I'm enrolled. He says, it, it's changed my life. And he said, this year I'm enrolled in a philosophy course at a local college. He said, it's taught by a guy who believes in naturalism. Naturalism is the idea there is no God, there's no supernatural. Everything can just be explained by, by what we see. And he says he's very hostile to the Christian faith. And he says, now I'm in the process of writing my, my final paper that's going to be a big part of my grade. I said, tell me about the paper. He said, well, he says, this is the title. Naturalism fails, but theism, belief in God, redeems. He says, I, he said, I got a strong argument in this paper. And he says, I want to use it as a springboard for sharing the gospel with my teacher. And I thought, you know what? God bless this guy. You know, in a class like this, your world could shrink. But just like Paul, he said, to live is Christ. To die is gain, even if the grade might die. And he's also saying, look, my purpose in life is to be here and represent the Lord and serve him and serve the people that he has put me with. And may that be our, our goal too. Let's pray. Father, the uh, first thing I want to do uh, here today again is just to apologize for all the complaining and whining that I have done when my world has shrunk. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would give me and my brothers and sisters here really the same vision that you gave Paul, that he could see really the big picture 
and that we would put our trust in you and see with Holy Spirit eyes really the way things really are, the great future you have for us, and the present possibilities that you've put in our path. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.